Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So uh, I was kind of joking that I'm kind of excited that Christmas is over and we're moving on to new and better things. <laughs> new and better things sounds terrible. I'm not just this fuddy-duddy that hates Christmas or hates the holidays or something, but I, I sound like it sometimes. <laughs> Does anybody have any like really awesome family Christmas traditions that you guys do? Like uh, I think it was Adam's family. You guys do tamales on Christmas Eve, right, right growing up? That sounds like one of the best Christmas traditions I have ever heard of. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to repeat what you just said, but uh, that was great. Um, my boys are finally at that age where we're starting to like, develop some Christmas traditions, and we've been a family now, starting long enough where we're, we're doing fun, fun things around the holidays, and now we're repeating them year after year, and so we've kind of started to develop this routine in December that is, is pretty awesome, and so we go over to Mimi's house, and we bake cookies, and we have a cookie decorating night, and uh, you know, we have this, uh, we, we always smoke a prime rib, which is one of the highlights of my Christmas, because it lasts well past Christmas, like we're still eating leftovers, and it's awesome. Um, but one of my favorite things that we've started doing, we've done it for the last three years now, is uh, my boys, who are six and three, uh, we have started doing this Lego Advent calendar. And so it's an Advent calendar for each day of December up until Christmas, where you punch out the little number, and then you build a little Lego spaceship from Star Wars. And it's, it's just fun. It's kind of cool if I'm nerding out for a second, but... Uh, it's so much fun because the boys look forward to it every single day. You know, they wake up first thing in the morning before they're going to school and saying, Dad, Dad, can we build our Legos? And then we kind of hold it over them as, well, if you're good today, <laughs> then we'll get to punch out Legos and build them. <laughs> if you listen to your mom and dad and you clean your room, then we'll do it. But uh, we always get to do it, and it's just been a lot of fun. Um, it's probably just like a money grab from Lego, um, but it is wildly addictive and fun, this little advent calendar. And so it's counting down the days to Christmas, right? It starts on the 1st of December. It ends on Christmas Day. And so to be honest, when I hear the word advent, um, that's immediately where my thoughts go to. You know, we throw around the language of advent, especially around Christmas time in our churches and um, not growing up in a liturgical church, my mind has always just been like, yeah, it's just a countdown to Christmas. In fact, somebody uh, sent me a picture of a, of a different Advent calendar that they got this year, and it's, uh, it's a Bruce Willis jumping off of a tower <laughs> or throwing a guy off of a tower from Die Hard, and it counts down to the lower level. It's just silly and funny, but uh, uh, my mind has always just been like, well, Advent is a countdown to Christmas. Um, but it's more than that. It's more than just a countdown. And so throughout the month of December, we had been focusing kind of on this theme of Advent. And uh, we kind of had our messaging revolving around this idea of Advent, which I'm going to talk about just for a little bit because it's going to set the stage for where we're going, not just in this morning's message, but actually for the, the entirety 
just the trajectory of our church's vision and mission as a whole. And so I, I kind of wanted to set the, the foundation here. You, you know, we're not a liturgical church, meaning that we don't hold to any kind of set calendar like a lot of denominations do. Um, but I think it's interesting and important to understand that Advent is actually the beginning of the liturgical church calendar. It typically consists of the first four Sundays of December, or at least the, the, the preceding Sundays, four Sundays preceding Christmas, or, and it kind of all culminates on Christmas Eve, December 24th. And so if we're going to base Advent or the season of Advent as uh, historically the church has looked at the liturgical calendar, Advent is over because it's post-Christmas right now. And so that's what I'm doing. I am preaching an Advent message after Advent. Is everybody okay with that? And so you might be saying, you know, Pastor Nate, it's time to move past Christmas. Christmas is over. It's done for. It's gone. Preach us a New Year's sermon. Give us some prophetic word for the new year. Cast some vision for what 2024 is going to hold for us. Don't you know it's Christmas Eve? Let's have fun. Let's have a party. I don't know. I, I, I just want to say these things that I don't want you to worry because you're going to hear my heart on what's to come for the church in this next season this morning, but it's directly connected to this idea of Advent. And so while we most often associate Advent with Christmas time, the name actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. Um, and it originally referenced the second coming of Christ in the New Testament, this word Adventus, this word in Latin. Um, and this kind of coincides and builds upon where we were last week. Um, last week, I didn't preach a, a super lengthy message. It was kind of more of a shortened Christian Christian, yes, it was Christian, Christmas <laughs> devotional just around um, the incarnation and the beauty of the, of the miracle of Jesus' Jesus's first coming. But I said last week that the incarnation cannot be separated from the rest of the gospel story. Uh, I agree that the incarnation is this beautiful, magnificent, history-altering event that is certainly a cause for us to pause, to remember, and to celebrate but it's a piece to a whole. It's a part to a larger gospel story. And uh, I think it's important to remember that Jesus came as a baby in a manger the first time to reconcile God and man. It's a beautiful thing to, second, to celebrate. But the second time that he's coming back is something also for us to look forward to. And his second coming is going to be wildly different than his first coming. His first coming, he came in peace as a baby in a manger. The second time he comes, scripture clearly defines it. He's coming back to make war on the enemies of God. And this is intense. This is serious. And it's not something that we should miss out on. So he's not coming again as a helpless babe, but he's coming to bring justice. And he's coming to set every wrong thing right. And that is something referred to as the blessed hope. And he's doing it once and for all. Revelation 19 describes Jesus as this in verses 11 through 16. John says, I see heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. 
He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of, God, of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a wildly different picture than what we see in Matthew chapter 1, or we see at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, of, of God becoming a helpless babe to save humanity. We see him coming back the second time with righteousness, with, judges, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with righteous judgment upon the earth. And it's something that I think it's important as we look at the season of Advent, we remember it's not an either-or mentality. In fact, the, the church for centuries, for millennia now, have celebrated Advent, or the season of Advent, of looking to his first, com uh, to his first coming as a, as a sign of remembrance uh, pointing to his second coming. In fact, this is actually the official statement of the Catholic Church regarding the Advent season. They say this, that the Advent season is a time of preparation that directs our hearts and minds to Christ's second coming at the end of time and to the anniversary of our Lord's birth on Christmas. I thought that was just wild. Like I, I, I didn't realize how rich of a history Advent actually is or, or, or the weight of it and just kind of digging into just some of the the theology and rich church history surrounding Advent and the traditions there, I just thought it was mind-boggling. And so I mentioned this last week, um, but there are actually plenty of Christmas songs that we sing at Christmas time. They're Christmas carols, if you will, that I always just had assumed were about the nativity, were about the night that Jesus was born. But they're actually about his second coming. One of the most famous, and, and actually it's said that it's one of the most famous hymns of all time, but uh, it's referenced as a Christmas carol. If you pull it up on Wikipedia, it's listed as a Christmas carol. But Joy to the World, you guys know this song. We sing it around Christmas time a lot. It was written by Isaac Watts in 1719, but it's actually a hymn about Jesus' second coming, not his first. Which is, really, which is really wild to think about. If you read all the lyrics, it, it's fascinating. But joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. Like this is not about Jesus coming as a baby. If you read the, the rest of the stanzas and the, and the other verses, it's about him coming back for his bride. And it's wild and it's beautiful and it's awesome. And I'm saying all of this is that I think the, the theme of the return of Jesus that permeates throughout the entirety of Scripture is a major theme of the New Testament is often lost on us as Christians in this day of age because it's so hard for us to think beyond the here and now and exactly what we're doing and what's right in front of us that we forget that there is a promise that God is coming again for his bride, that God is coming again for his church and we want to chalk it up to a fairy tale or maybe just a pleasant idea or something that just sounds good but isn't actually going to happen. And I want to remind you today that Jesus said it would happen. Jesus said he was coming again. And I believe that to be true. And it needs to change the way that we live our lives. 
So the second coming, the marriage of the Lamb, that is the culmination of the entire gospel story. What began back in the garden, the final restoration of man and God, is is what we're looking forward to at his coming. You see, we look to the story of the incarnation of Jesus' first coming as the beginning of of the promise fulfilled. But we look to his second coming, his final coming with the expectation of God's ultimate and final defeat over evil. And I feel like I share this passage quite frequently. I'd be interested to know how many times I've shared it in the last number of years since I've been the pastor of this church. I I feel like I probably come back to it like once a quarter maybe. (laughs) Um, And I don't make apologies for that, but I think it's just... uh, It's gripping when I read it, and it it helps kind of root this truth in my soul, in my being, that the return of Jesus, that his his imminent coming is not just something that is folklore, it's not fairy tale, that fact that God is coming back for a bride um, is so important to us. And I I share 2 Peter 3 quite frequently, but I want to read it again. Because there's too much scripture throughout the New Testament to ignore this truth. But Peter would write this. I'm just going to begin in verse 3. It says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He does not want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to repent. This is the reasoning that Peter would say that that his coming is delayed, because he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. This is intense. This is heavy language. But verse 11 is where the real kicker is. He says, because this is happening, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, This is where we are, right? We're in this waiting period. We're in this looking period. We're waiting for his return. And everything wrong has not been made right yet. We understand that. But there is a day coming where every wrong thing will be made right. Justice has not been poured out upon the earth. But there is one day where justice is going to be poured out upon the earth. And God will receive glory from every tongue. 
But this is, where it, this is where it says. While we are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. This is what we ought to be doing. We should be making every effort. That means there's something expected, expected of us, correct? There is some kind of effort that we put into the equation here to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, the Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. So verse 14 again, it says this, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Right? Immediately before this, just a, a couple verses ahead, we're exhorted that because Jesus is coming back, because judgment is coming to the earth, Peter asks us what holy and godly lives we should be living. The reality of Jesus' imminent return, meaning that it's going to happen. There's no changing that reality. There's no changing that fact. He is going to come back says should ha that should have an effect on the way that we live our lives. And Peter says that we should be living holy and godly lives in light of that fact. Because God is coming back for a church. He's coming back for a bride, as he would call us, without spot or wrinkle. A blameless Bride, the same language that is used here in 3.14 of 2 Peter is used in Ephesians 5. When we read 5.25 through 27, uh, the command is given for husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her, the church, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. God is coming back for a pure church. He's coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. He's coming back for a church that reflects what he did on the cross. Unfortunately, I see much of what passes for Christianity and much of what passes as the church of Jesus Christ today not meeting this criteria, not living like the redeemed of God, not living holy and godly lives, but rather is just kind of mess or hodgepodge like the rest of the world lives. We see a distinctive factor of the church of Christ. A distinctive factor of the people of God is that they would live differently. They were live, they would live like though they were saved. Weddings are crazy. How many of you guys have been to a wedding? Some of you? I see married people not raising their hands right now. We got other things to talk about in this case then. Now, I've been to all kinds of weddings. I've been to pretty simple weddings. I've been to pretty extravagant weddings. But one thing that I have seen in common across the board is that when the bride gets ready for this big day, there's some time and effort that goes into like makeup and hair and like getting you ready for the day. In fact, for my wedding, I remember talking to Kelly about uh, the timeline 
of what we needed to do. I was kind of interested in having an earlier wedding in the day. And she had to explain to me why almost all weddings are in the afternoon or the evening is because it takes the entire morning to get ready for the ceremony from hair, makeup, nails, and dress, and all these different things. I didn't realize how long and engaging of a process this is. For guys, we put on a suit, and we're ready for like, we're ready in like 10 minutes. I remember that for my wedding. Like, you know, we ironed, we ironed some shirts, and I put on the tie, and then we're like, well, what do we do now? Like, uh, in fact, one of the weddings that I got ready for, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't the groom in this particular situation, but... You know, I still had to wear a suit and tie. We got ready, and the girls still had like four or five hours before they were going to be ready. So we all took kayaks out into the ocean in our suits and ties. <laughs> it's a bad idea. The, br- the bride would have killed us if she would have known. We took the groom with us, and we went kayaking in the ocean for like two hours, and we came back, and we still had time for our clothes to dry off before the ceremony. <laughs> Evidently, you can't do that if you're a bride, is what I'm getting at, right? <laughs> if you're doing your hair and getting your makeup done, there's no time to go kayaking in, in, the, in, in the Gulf of... It was a really cool wedding, sorry. I doubt, Joel or Mary Helen, you're ever listening to this, but that was one of the coolest wedding experiences I've had, uh, apart from my own. But I'm using this example um, because we are given... We are given... Um, We're given the language that when Christ returns, when Christ will return, it will be unexpected. He comes as a thief in the night, as Peter would put it. We look at the parables and the teachings of Jesus that prompt us to be ready. It comes at an unknown time, an unknown hour, and we're to live ready, not get ready when he's coming. There's, 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 because he's already coming. Does that make sense? We've been given the notification that he's on his way. It's time for us to get things in order and prepare ourselves to be received by him. When the trumpet sounds and he steps foot on the Mount of Olives, it's going to be too late for us to get right with the Lord. Us getting right with the Lord happens here and now, and he expects his bride to be holy and to live like he's actually purchased change for us. Does that make sense? We could go on to this for for a really, really, really long time, but I do want to make specific note of this Um, because when we read in Ephesians 5, it is Jesus that makes us blameless, 100% without a doubt. He's the one that makes us right. He's the one that makes us spotless. He is the one that changes us. It's not some kind of cleaning up our act that we just do But the rest of scripture, and 2 Peter here even emphasizes uh, a diligence is the language used in verse 14 on our part. It tells us to make every effort, meaning there is is some of our effort that is put into this equation based upon what Jesus has already done to live peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Does that make sense? There's a lot we could go off on there, but I think if I were were to put it simply, our lives need to look radically different based upon the fact that Jesus is coming back. We need to live like he's going to return. I don't know. Maybe maybe you guys don't do this, but I do this thing. When I know we have company coming over, I do like the speed clean of the house, right? 
So if you ever come over to my house, like, don't go into my bedroom, because probably everything that was in the living room is now in the bedroom. <laughs> shoved over there real quick. And it's, it's always the worst when you have unexpected company, and they come over, and you're like, I don't need to clean the house or do the dishes today. You know what? Because nobody's coming over. And then somebody just busts in your door at, like, 11 o'clock at night or whatnot, because they think the propane's on fire or whatever. That was a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> still... Shelby busted into our house last night while we were watching a movie with the kids because she thought the gas was on and that the house was going to blow up, which I'm grateful for, for, for your proactiveness there. It's, anyway. The whole idea is when someone shows up unexpectedly, we don't have time to get our things in order. We need to live as though he is coming back at any moment. That was something that gripped the early church. That was something that they lived and were convicted by, that they lived their lives in such a way that they would not be ashamed at his coming. And that is something that I want to model, and that's something that I want to mark my life as a Christian. And so as I was approaching the Lord about what's next for our church, where we're going, what direction we're heading, you know, I was, I was asking the Lord to give me dreams, to give me vision about the kind of the next season of ministry. If there was, I was asking him if there's something new or something different that we should be doing as we enter this new year. I didn't get like some kind of prophetic, uh, you know, voice from heaven or, or, or some kind of really crazy dream or this really specific or special instruction. I wouldn't be opposed to that if he did. I want, I want you guys to know, like, I would love that. We believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in prophecy. It's something that we desire. We don't treat it with contempt or anything like that. But what I did receive from the Lord came from his word in Titus chapter 2. So if you want to turn with me there. I don't know if you guys know this, but in your Bibles, there are subheadings that exist based upon, like, what translation you have. If you have, like, the NIV or the NLT or the New King James um, those aren't actually part of the original, like, uh, texts or the original, uh, the original manuscripts that we have. They're added to kind of help us navigate and figure out where we are in scripture. Um, but every so often I do find them, a, uh, incredibly helpful. I think I would say that way. And the, the subheading for me in the new King James version of Titus chapter 2 is qualities of a sound church. And so as I was reading Titus chapter 2, and I was actually reading it in a different translation, I'm actually going to be preaching out of the NIV, but when I went to just my regular paper Bible, which is the New King James, uh, I noticed it after I had written my message up at the top, it said that these are qualities of a sound church. And I was just saying, you know what, I like that. I want, I want that to be in my sermon somewhere. And so... <laughs> I, this is where I'm going to implement it. It's interesting for me because every year at this time, towards the end of the year, especially around New Year's, and there's like a shifting that takes place. I don't know about you, but some of you guys might start getting like advertisements for like uh, a new year, a new you, kind of like enroll at the gym or try this new diet or these things. Does anybody get those? Like on social media, you just see kind of the increase of like, Buy some workout equipment, go on this diet, do all these different things, like try something new, you know? I remember uh, for the brief period of time that I was consistent at the gym, it wasn't very long, and it was required of me when I was in ministry school, but uh, around the first of the year, right at New Year's, there'd be an influx of people that would come and work out with us. 
And it would last for maybe two or three weeks, and then it would be back to normal. Um, but this the whole idea of like uh, gearing up change. Well, as a pastor, I get different um, I get different advertisements kind of marketed towards me, and I get different emails <laughs> than what I got when I wasn't in ministry. And right now, the kind of the 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 the, the majority of the emails, which I have like 150,000, because I'm not the guy that deletes my emails, <laughs> and they're all like. They're all junk email, but they're, the headings are all the same. It's like uh, they say stuff along the lines of, you know, how to break the 100, 250, or 500 uh, person barrier in your church, or keys to maximize, maximize church growth, and how are you going to take your church from 100 to 500 in the year 2024, and it's all these classes that are marketed by people and marketing firms and strategies that, that really want us to to see what God's doing here explode would be kind of the language that they use in this next year. And I'm not saying that all of these things are bad or even their strategies are wrong or, or something like that. I know guys that have used them that are good, godly pastors. And I know that there are larger churches out there that are doing incredible work. All that to say, it's just simply not my focus. I'm really, it would be terrifying to me if I showed up here on a Sunday morning and there were 250 people in this room, I'm pretty sure that would be against fire code, right? I think we'd get shut down for something like that. Honestly, I don't think the building would hold it. If you see this new crack in the wall on the side over there, that's just kind of falling apart. <laughs> um, that's, that's not my focus, friends. Now everybody's looking at the crack in the wall and they're not paying attention to me. <laughs> yes, that's bad. If you think that's bad, look beneath us. It's scarier in the back closet. Uh, we're getting it figured out. Uh, at some point, it'll get fixed or covered up. <laughs> Can I just be honest? I'm not interested, and I need you to hear me on this. I'm not interested in pastoring a large church for the sake of pastoring a large church. I'm more concerned on whether or not the church that I am pastoring is sound. Is it healthy? That is my heart and where, where I want to go in this next season is not necessarily see how many seats we can fill or see how many people that we can get to commit to coming to our church or increase our offerings or those things. Trust me, friends, I am ecstatic that people are coming. I am ecstatic, you know, that, that we might need to put out more chairs or those things. I'm, I'm rejoicing in that. If you're, this is your first time here, I'm so happy that you're here with us. But that's not our goal. That's not our aim. Our aim is not just to have more money in the bank and more people in the room. Our aim is to produce disciples. That is, that is what I want to see. And there are plenty of large ministries out there that aren't healthy environments for church growth or healthy environments for Christian growth or Christian development, right? If we're going to be fair, there are plenty of small churches that aren't healthy as well. Um, I'm just saying all this because I don't think church size is the right metric to judge church health. Does that make sense? Um, at least that's my opinion. I think there are plenty of small churches that are very healthy, and there are plenty of large churches that aren't. And in the same way, vice versa, church, church size is not the best metric of church health. I want to know whether or not our doctrine is sound, whether we're doing what Jesus asked us to do, and whether or not we're making disciples of all nations. 
That is what he commanded us. That's what he explicitly asked of us. And so that is where, uh, that is how the Lord kind of directed me here into Titus chapter 2. You see, Paul is writing to Titus. He's a co-worker of Paul's uh, who faced the difficult task of pastoring the church that Paul planted. Paul didn't spend a lot of time on his second ministry journey planning the church in Thessalonica, um, but it was a church that was planted by him that saw rapid growth, that saw God do a lot of great things, and it was a church that was heavily persecuted. And Paul continued on his missionary journeys, planting churches throughout Asia Minor, and he left Titus as a laborer of his with the work of pastoring all of these new believers, all of these new converts to Christianity. And so this is what he, he writes to Titus. And I want to be clear, we're not going to dive into all the specific instructions that are given to different groups of people here. Um, it'd be really fascinating, and I think there's a lot of cultural things that we could talk about. And so uh, we'll unpack those for a later date. Um, we just don't have the time to do that this morning. But in Titus chapter 2, I'm going to read just the entirety of this chapter. It's not a very long one, but there's a few things that I really want to highlight. And so this was written to Titus, the pastor of this church in Thessalonica. Or not in, what did I say? It's not in Thessalonica. Um, where was... I'm drawing a blank, Adam. Help me. This church that Paul planted. I am drawing a blank, guys. Um, it's, in, it's in Crete. Crete. That's where it's at. Sorry. I was reading First uh, and Second Thessalonians today in my quiet time, not in... Thanks, guys, for being patient with me. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Verse 1, it says this. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to subject and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be the subject to their masters and everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them and to not steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. There's so much that we could unpack here that I would really love to. There's a lot of, a lot of things that are culturally like, really interesting when we're talking about wives 
and, and we're talking about uh, husbands and we're talking about slaves, all these different kind of facets of life that um, you might have questions about. I'd love to answer those, just not right here because that's not the focus of the message this morning. But what I do want to highlight are, are two parts of this passage. The first one is where I felt personally convicted by the Lord and I felt like he was using this passage of scripture to speak to me as a pastor where I read this, where it says, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. I took this as a pastor of this church as a charge from the Lord for myself as well. I read it as you, Nate, (laughs) must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. This is the charge that I believe I have received from the Lord. My command from God is to make sure we're making disciples based upon sound doctrine. So Matthew 28, 19, and 20, this is, this is something interesting. This is the, some of the last words of Jesus where he gives this explicit command at the end of the book of Matthew. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And verse 20 is kind of the kicker here. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And, I, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Again, we have this promise of Emmanuel, God being with us. But to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is where I am, friends. I have a charge from God as the pastor of this church to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And so this is more than just trying to get you to know what is right intellectually. It's about living what is right. It's not just about giving you information so that you can have right answers, so you can pass the quiz or you can pass the test. It's about actually living things out. I like the way that the Living Bible translates this verse. Um, and I think I, I think I gave it to me to put up on the screen. But it translates verse 1 here is, Speak up for the right living that goes along with true Christianity. Oh, not up there? No, that's okay. <laughs> um, this isn't always popular, friends. This isn't, this isn't what like, gets people to make you like you as a pastor. You know, uh, It can be fun to, to kind of be the guy that wants to be your friend and hang out. But my charge as a minister of the gospel is to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. It's outlined here. And I like the way that David Guzik puts this. He says this, that we cannot escape this reality, that the Bible is a book that tells us how to live. The Bible is a book that tells us how to live. And given, given just our personal nature as human beings, we don't like being told what we have to do or how we have to do it. There is a rebellious nature that kicks in where I don't want to be told what to do or how to do it. Anybody else like that? That's just kind of innately built into you? (laughs) I am am rebellious to a fault, and I'm so thankful that Jesus intervened when he did in my life, but I always had a problem with authority. I see that some of you probably didn't, but I I know that a lot of us do. (laughs) But the Bible does tell us how to live. And it, 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 goes, it goes on to say this. It is the height of hypocrisy to say that uh, we believe it's truth. 
that we believe the truth of the Bible and ignore how it tells us to live our lives. We cannot say that we love Jesus and ignore the commands that he asked for us. We cannot say that we love the word of God. We cannot say that we believe it to be the word of God and not allow it to shape the way that we live. We don't always like it, but we always need to hear how God expects us to live. It's part of the reason why we're walking through 1 Corinthians, which I'm excited to get back into 1 Corinthians next week. This is where we are. This is where we've been. But I love the conclusion of this whole chunk of, of Scripture here in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. The return of Jesus is our blessed hope. It's not the promise of heaven or some kind of future of just like eternal life, just perpetually in limbo, but seeing Jesus is our blessed hope. Seeing him face to face, his return is what we're looking forward to. And I love the language here in verse 14, looking for, looking for this blessed hope, looking for this glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's something that we're to look forward to. And then because of that, we need to live like he's actually coming back and not just let it be some kind of pleasant thought that he might someday change things. And I'm grateful here. I'm grateful here for verses 11, 12, 13, all of these, where it says that it's the grace of God that brings salvation. I, that, is, that is where we are. We're not here based upon our own merit. It's not here because we're smart enough or we figured it out or we were good enough. It's the grace of God, but it's appeared to all men. It's available to each and every person, regardless of stature, regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless of who you are. The grace of God has appeared to all of us. And it goes on, it says, teaching us. I love it that the grace of God here teaches us. It's not necessarily these things that he's expecting us to do, to live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly in this present age. These aren't natural things for us to do, but it's the grace of God that teaches us. God never, ever expects something from you that he's not fully prepared to equip you to accomplish. He's not asking you to live holy He's not asking you to live some kind of to impossible standard without preparing you and giving you the ability to live up to it. And that's what the grace of God does. Does that make sense? It's his grace that saves. It's his grace that teaches us to deny, right? It says there in verse 12, deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. It's his grace that teaches us the way that we're supposed to live, how we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. It's his grace that teaches us to look forward to this blessed hope, to live expectant of Jesus's return. 
To borrow from David Guzik again, he, he says this, that looking for, this language here, it indicates that Christians should live in active expectation of the return of Jesus. It should be precious for us as Christians, as men and women of God, to consider this reality, to consider these things. He says he came the first time to save the soul of man, and he will come a second time to resurrect the body. He came the first time to save the individual, but he'll come a second time to save all mankind. He came the first time to a crucifixion, but he will come a second time to a coronation. He came the first time to a tree, and he will come the second time to a throne. He came the first time in humility, but he will come the second time in glory. He came the first time and was judged by men, but he will come a second time to judge all mankind. I wrote down that grace teaches us to deny, to live, and to look based upon this passage of scripture. To deny ourselves, our ungodly desires, and our lusts teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I think sometimes people teach this idea that we'll finally get it figured out once Jesus comes back, that we're not going to actually have victory over sin here and now, but that's not what Jesus promises us. He says that we can live, we can live victorious, we can live sober, we can live righteous, and we can live godly in this present age by way of his grace. And then grace teaches us to look forward to his imminent return. I want to be living my life in such a manner that if Jesus were to return at any moment, I wouldn't be ashamed of what I was doing. And I can't say that happens 100% of the time. There are times when I'm in the car <laughs> And the flesh just comes up inside of me. A lot. I think if I was being honest and transparent, I probably struggle with road rage far more than somebody that is redeemed by the blood of Jesus should. I'm grateful that he's working on me. How embarrassing would it be for me to just be going on a rant because some guy cut me off and Jesus is tr and the trumpet blows? And the end of all things comes to fruition. I get called to stand before the, the judgment seat. I don't want to be caught <laughs> being stupid at the moment of his return. Does that make sense? I mean, just, just simple there. And this was something that gripped the early church, that God was coming back. And it's not just some kind of ploy. It's just not some kind of manipulation to scare you into doing the right thing. I just don't want to be ashamed at his coming. I would much rather be sharing the gospel with somebody that needed to hear it or or, or serving somebody that desperately needed to be served. That moment when he returns. 
here to ask me what I want, what kind of dream or vision I have for our congregation stepping into this new year. It's going to be the same from this new year as it was last year. And hopefully until he comes again that we would make disciples, that we would preach the word. That we would teach holiness and living different in this present age until he comes again. That may mean we don't have a million people in this church. Maybe it does. A million, okay, obviously a million was an exaggeration. You guys got that. <laughs> My hope isn't to have a massive ministry. My hope is that for those of you that sit in this room and sit under our teaching here and come to our Bible studies and our deeper projects and you're involved in our times of prayer and practice and you receive prophetic words or you, or you hear something from the Lord, my, my goal and my aim and my passion as a pastor is that it would provoke holiness inside of you to live different so that we might be presented as mature, that we might be presented as spotless, as blameless before him when he returns. With that being said, uh, we're going to conclude the service this morning with sharing from the Lord's table and taking communion together. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.